Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast. Our goal is to help technical professionals accelerate their career progression, increase their job satisfaction, and bring you the advice we wish had been given earlier in our careers. I'm your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, joined by my co-host, Nick Corty, at NetworkNerd underscore. We both work in the tech industry with backgrounds in IT operations and sales engineering. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey. A journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. We also wanted to mention that our second site, graph.nerd-journey.com, is also live. That's the knowledge graph and linked notes version of our main page's show notes that we developed to make it easier to explore our episodes, guests, and topics. Hey, welcome to episode 238. This week, it's part two of our conversation with Leanne Elliott. She's a business psychologist, a founder of a consultancy, a leadership coach, and the co-host of the Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture podcast with her husband, Al Elliott. If you missed part one of our discussion with Leanne in episode 237, it's worth a listen. We talked about how Leanne got interested in psychology and why she chose to pursue that as a career. She had some very helpful volunteer experience that helped her build skills for later use. She also talks about an interesting pivot she had to make during an economic crisis. Leanne told us what coaching was as a discipline, and then Leanne also spent some time talking about how layoffs can impact people psychologically, not just the people who are laid off, but also those who remain at a company and those who have to execute the layoffs as well. There is a psychological processing that has to happen. So what's on tap for part two this week specifically? This week, we're going to hear a little bit more about what Leanne and Al do in their work at Oblong. We're going to talk about why they started the Truth, Lies, and Workplace Culture podcast. We'll talk a little bit about what culture even means and how managers can impact the culture. If you are a manager or someone who's thinking about becoming a manager, this is a great episode for you to get some fantastic nuggets on a concept called hiding the wires. Is that something you're doing? Is that something you should do? Let's find out with part two of our discussion with Leanne Elliott. Let's maybe use this opportunity to talk a little bit about your work at Oblong to kind of try to foster high-performing workplace cultures. There, there seems to be, you know, and I've listened to several episodes of, of the podcast, tons and tons of lessons that are available to be learned. And I'm, I'm sure that no organization has the exact same problems, but th there has to be some basic principles. And I know that, in fact, you had an episode about that, kind of the, the first four things that you probably want to start working on. Can you talk a little bit about that work? Maybe instead of talking about that specific topic, like how you arrived at those ideas to be able to apply them. Just so I'm just so I'm, I'm sure, John, which episode is it that you're? I think it was about? episode number two, actually. Oh, okay. The four principles of engagement. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
So in terms of, of culture, it can feel very intangible. It can feel like something that we can never quite wrap our head around. There are 50 plus definitions of, of workplace culture out there. We can't even agree on that. So to approach culture through culture is really quite difficult, particularly with a, a commercial head on, because you need to try and understand where these, these push and pull is and how that's trying to translate to, to commercial outcomes. So what we've tried to do is distill it into foundations that leaders can provide, that they can um, nurture, that they can um, embed within the organization. And that's everything from you know, the, the vision side of things to how people recruit, to how people are performance managed, to how people are, are led. Um, so I think it's really for us, it's taking lessons that are practical, that are actionable, and that actually translate to positive employee attitudes and behaviours. So we talk a lot about what is called employee engagement, because that is what I guess the output of culture is. It's how engaged people are. It's how much they how much job satisfaction they experience, what sense of belonging they experience, how much extra role effort they're willing to put into their jobs, you know, the dedication to their organisation, the commitment they have to their organisation. They're the things that we can measure. These are things that we can track. And these are things that are also linked to commercial outcomes. So now the more engaged employees, usually that means businesses are will experience less turnover, less absenteeism, they'll have higher profitability, more agility to change, faster speed to market. So for us, all of our lessons tend to usually come back to employee engagement, employee insights, because this is the things, these are things that we can measure. These are things that we can change. These are things that we can play with within culture. Um, whereas putting a ping pong table in the break room, it's fairly hard to measure the, you know, the impact of that on the business's performance. I mean, it is shocking, like the number of ping pong tables that are, <laughs> that are in corporate workspaces and I've, I've just never understood exactly what people thought that was leading to. Maybe it's just an obligation. I think it is now. I think, yeah, beanbags and a ping pong table is just what you do. But no, it came from, I think this is often where, and we, we talk about simplifying the science of people, often the, the what's being done in organizations can be detached from the why things are being done. And often, you know, what will work in one organization won't work in another. So the reason ping pong tables, fancy breakout areas were put in, in these types of usually large organizational complexes is because it's encouraging people to take breaks. It's encouraging people to move around. It's encouraging people to uh, collaborate, to build relationships with their colleagues. And we know all of these things have a positive impact on employee engagement. To have that impact requires intention. It requires an organization to say, well, how do we use these breakout areas? How do we encourage you to take breaks? If you have a massive workload, then I'm not going to go and have a game of ping pong table at lunchtime because I need to work through. Um, so I think often that's the thing is that that what's being done has been detached from from the why it was done in the first place. That's so funny. And the way that you lay that out makes total sense. But then it's it's a lot easier to look at the uh, the things and ignore the uh, the psychology behind it. That that is hilarious. I, I it just never <laughs> even occurred to me. <laughs> yeah, the separation of what and why is sort of what you were doing when you were checking your vitals in a way. Yeah, one hundred percent. That's kind of the the what and why at an individual level versus the what and why at an organizational level. 
those two things aren't connected, then, you know, we're, we're throwing things, we're, we're putting ourselves in situations that we don't know how that's how we're going to feel about that. We'll see how it, you know, maybe it'll go well, maybe it won't. And for organisations, they're spending money on interventions that they don't even have one, any way of measuring, um, you know, the impact on the individual or the organisation, um, or two, any kind of connected intention behind it. Like, how does this feed into our into our culture, into values? Is that alignment? Because any incongruence in that, just drives us nuts and that's the first thing that that will push us to to disengage because authentic in like not being authentic as an organization not living your values people see three straight through it and it, it, it's it's almost better to do nothing than to try something and not know why you're doing it or how it might have an impact probably just better leaving things as they are so let me ask this question what made you and al want to start the podcast in the first place um exactly that really connecting the what and the why i think we were aware of the impact that our, our kind of our client work was having not only on um, the leaders that we were working with in terms of giving them um, clarity and control over an area that they've always struggled with but also seeing you know that feedback come back from from the employees as well you know six 12 months on when we go back into the organization and, and seeing how they developed and how they'd, how they'd grown and how much more fulfilled and happy they were it felt like we we needed to take this message wider we need to try and tell people and and you know it's not not every small business um particularly you know a business that has less than 20 employees can afford to engage a consultant or a psychologist to come in and and do these things there is an element of how do I do this myself or how do I build the internal capability in my ops manager or you know my HR partner um to do these things so it's really these lessons of let's let's try and let go of the trend and let's try and let go of what's being done let's reverse engineer it a bit and talk about the why, because actually there's probably so many things that you could do as a leader, completely free, that aren't going to cost you any money, that can have a much bigger impact on the success of your business and the performance of your people and, and the fulfillment of your people. So that was why we started it really, to bring these kind of best practice, basic best practice lessons to, to owner-led businesses so they could start to understand a bit more about how people and culture work within their organisation, start to understand the things that they could do um, to make things better, make things less stressful for them. Um, and really just also what it's kind of evolved into is is shedding light on some topics that are talked about in the media, sensationalised perhaps. And again, without much context. So the whole quiet quitting phenomenon, you know what I mean? It's like outcry, the millennials and Gen Z just don't want to work anymore. How dare they? They're fools. They'll never progress in their career. Who do they think they are? Quiet quitting is disengagement. And that's been around for decades. We've been doing that for decades. Let's not, let's not, you know, use Gen Z and millennials as a scapegoat here. Let's not, let's not do that. So it's jumping on things like that as well and, and just yeah, trying to put the record straight. Yeah, that particular outcry, media outcry, I was like, Oh, somebody needs to fill some column inches. They filled a lot of them with that, didn't they? Like that just felt absolutely not new at all, except the name. How can we create some new marketing around this thing? Yeah, and blame <laughs> yeah. and blame the people joining the workforce for it. It's not always like we've never done that. No, there there was a previous uh, phrase. It was called uh, retire on active duty. Oh, uh, yeah. That, and that's old right? That's decades old. I assume it comes from the military at some point because the, the full phrase was road warriors, people who are still on active duty, but essentially retired because they're just doing the minimum to not necessarily 
you know, raise the level of, oh, this person needs to leave the organization, or it'll take too much effort to manage this person out of the organization versus just letting them coast. And then somebody yeah. said quiet quitting and there was an outrage. <laughs> yeah, it is laughable. It is funny. And there's still there's still so many coming through. There's loud quitting now, which is, we talked about, I think it was last week or the week before. But I think it, it's that thing of particularly, I think, with owner-led businesses who are who are overwhelmed by this. They're overwhelmed by the fight for talent. They're overwhelmed by the skill shortages. They're overwhelmed by the inflated salaries that, that people seem to be wanting. It can be very easy and very natural for us as humans to assign blame. If we can go, oh, what can I do to attract talent? Everyone's quite quitting. It's not me. That's just what the generation does. And I think that's the thing that we want to re-educate people on, help leaders take that accountability. And there is so much accountability on the leader's shoulders. It is, it is heavy and it is, it is weighing a lot of people down, understandably. But we have to wear that accountability. We have to do that. We can find ways to, to make the load lighter, but ultimately we have to take accountability for how people are thinking, feeling and behaving in our business. Do you see a pattern? This is something that I just assumed was the case. What I think about is this equity imbalance, which is especially prevalent in smaller businesses where the ownership is tends to be on premises. They're there and they've hired people, sometimes directly, who don't have a stake in their business, an ownership stake in their business they have the full ownership stake. And so they see every misstep as this like, almost like an attack on the equity of their business. And, and this is like, I'll, you know, this close kind of like a toxic attitude to have, right? And and that's maybe an extreme version of that. But there's even in, in medium and large businesses, there, there can be kind of a, a mismatch in how much equity people have in the organization, but they expect everybody to be fully invested in the organization as if they are owners in the organization when, in fact, like very demonstrably, they are not. I've seen that and I, I just wonder whether it's acknowledged when somebody needs to come up with an idea or an, a diag- with a diagnosis about what healthy workplace culture looks like. Because there are substitutions for actual equity in the business. You don't necessarily need to give that away, but you do need to have an environment within the workplace where people do feel motivated and engaged without necessarily, you know, saying, oh, my my stock shares are going up or, you know, if the business is sold, then I'll, I'll get a chunk of money, you know, from that sale. They can still feel like some level of ownership in the success of the organization without having contractual ownership of it. Yeah, and I think there's there's two main main things there is one that, you know, entrepreneurs typically make pretty poor people leaders. <laughs> you know, entrepreneurs are massive risk takers. They love change, they love disruption. They love uh, you know, pursuing new ideas. Like I joke that Al, like the minute you see something shiny, he's like, oh, and he's off. And I'm like, no, come back, come back. We're doing this. So I think, you know, typically there will come to a point in a in an owner-led business, an entrepreneur-led business where that entrepreneur needs to step aside from people leadership. And that is why we see, you know, often, you know, fantastic number two COOs that will come in and, and you know, will, will be the, the kind of the balance that that organization needs once it hits a particular size. You get to a point of your growth where you don't want disruption. You don't want that level of ambiguity. You need a fair level of stability and process and frameworks and, and structure. So I think as an entrepreneur, it, it's recognizing that if you're, if you're constantly frustrated 
that your people don't care as much about your business as you do, it might be worth taking some time to reflect and think, am I the right person to be speaking to and trying to motivate the people in my workforce? I think the second thing is exactly what you said. You know, you, you, you're making an assumption as a business leader or a business owner that we're all motivated by money alone. And we're not. We're motivated by many other things. And I think particularly with your point earlier that, you know, this traditional career trajectory where we go to university and we get a job for life and we stay there and we retire at 65 with a a gold watch and a five bedroom house and 2.4 kids that that doesn't exist anymore so the conversation has changed well what am I going to get out of the next two to five years of committing my career to your organization is that fulfillment is it purpose is it development is it money is it bonuses is it a fast track is it trying different you know expanding my skills be able to work in different projects is it be able to if I work for a consultancy going in-house to work with different organizations for a little while and get that side of it there are so many different things that I think it's again it comes down to and it's so simple it all comes down to asking your people what you want and within the commercial constraints of your business try and give it to them it sounds like you might have just described the role of a good manager, just period. <laughs> Pretty much. You know, your job as, as a manager is to enable the performance of others. You're there to facilitate and it's called empathic concern. How, what can I do to make your job easier? Um, you know, whether that's refining or streamlining a process, whether that's, you know, shifting, you know, the flexibility of, of how and where you work. It's pretty simple when you boil it down to that. And of course, there are going to be constraints, whether it be budgetary or you know, the culture or what leadership want in terms of where and how we work. But that that basic principle will probably get you pretty far in, in management. Listen to your people, don't judge, have empathic concern and try and make their lives a little bit easier. And if I'm someone who's thinking about stepping into management, are there other other considerations I need to take in addition to what we've talked about before stepping into that role? Things I can't see before getting into the job yeah undoubtedly there will be because you know you know water runs downhill that flood will come for you particularly if you're in that middle management position it's the worst position to be in because you've got it from all all angles some of the time um so i think that the key to that is really working on yourself and engage a coach i know we keep coming back to coaching but it is that area of development building your self-awareness your emotional intelligence as a manager as a leader is fundamental understanding your values how that fits into what you want do you want to be a manager because you want to manage people and you want to have you know this role where you know what you do will impact other people and you have to take the responsibility for that but you also reap the rewards of that and your team's success are your successes is that the role you want or is it just because that's the next role up the ladder to get a more pay you know well that's the the way I have to go to progress my career I think it's really understanding what you want because being a manager is really hard and unless you just fundamentally want to be in that people leadership role I'm not sure it's worth it to be honest there's a lot there so I think it would be understanding that there is going to be challenges thrown at you there is going to be many days that you're a bad manager more days you're a bad manager than you are a good manager but it's how you respond in that moment and people will judge you more kindly uh, for responding well when you've messed up and made a mistake. And then they will if you just just coast through as this, you know, amazing people manager. So I think self-investment is massive. Um, and I think finally is just looking at your own, your own mental health, your own well-being and where you gain your energy from. Because regardless of, of how much, you know, you, you might want to be a people manager or you're built to be a people manager, it will take a toll. You know, it will be stressful. It will be a strain. 
So I think it's making sure that you understand how you recharge, how you disconnect from work, how can you can leave problems there and, and go back to your, you know, your, your life and your family. Um, and that in itself is going to help you build your resilience. And that's what you're going to need as a particularly as a, as a middle manager, as a new manager. Um, yeah, expectations will be high and support will probably be fairly low. So you're going to have to rely on yourself for the first bit. And is that part of what you describe in the episode where Al interviews you as hiding the wires? Yeah, it's definitely an extension of that. My thing that, you know, my, my mentor, John, taught me was, you know, people, you're going to experience stress, but you don't want to pass that stress on to your team. And that's not to say there aren't people around you to support you with your stress. Like John was very much there for me. But, you know, to go in, you know, throwing your bag across the room and, you know, putting that stress on other people is just completely counterproductive. You need to hide the wires. You need to create an environment where all they need to worry about is doing their job and they have your support to help them do their job well. It sounds simple, doesn't it? But it, it, it is difficult and it is stressful. Well, I heard in a recent training, I forget what it was about, maybe a respectful workplace. And it said, managers are culture keepers. Uh, you know, as I've been listening to our discussion and some of your comments, absolutely seems true. Yeah, my, my favorite definition of culture, we've always said there's over 50, but my personal favorite is by a psychologist. And I talk about him all the time on the podcast. I'm trying to get him on. And so far he's resisting, but we will get there. Um, but John Amici, who defines culture as, you know, the worst behaviors tolerated. Because, you know, as a manager, if you're a person that claims to create this environment where where people are treated with respect, where people are civil to each other, it's not even about being best mates, just being civil and being respectful goes a long, long way. If you say this and that's what you stand for and that's the values of the company you're representing, yet you are, you know, in, in the office or even on a Zoom call and someone is very clearly disrespectful to another person, not jumping on that, either in that environment or afterwards, whatever is more appropriate, letting that slide, that defines your culture. It doesn't matter what values you've got written on the wall. It doesn't matter how, you know, senior leadership talk about their culture. It doesn't matter about how marketing communications are presenting your employer brand to potential candidates. If you've got behaviours within your organisation that are tolerated, bad behaviours that are tolerated, that even that smallest pocket of toxicity, that's what defines your culture. And you're right, that's why managers are culture keepers. It's so interesting, powerful, but also difficult, I guess, is, is, is why it's difficult, right? Why you need skills to actually do that job. Yeah, and I think that, you know, managing, being comfortable managing these situations, you know, managing that confrontation, having that difficult conversation you know that itself is a very practical skill that a manager can learn and one that will be you know hugely useful because there's situations you're always going to arrive at remember your staff or whether it's a senior leader or whether it's even a customer you know it's there are definitely practical skills building courses tools we can put in place for managers to support them there's absolutely that that transaction that practical side um, but it does come down to that, that empathy, that emotional intelligence, that authenticity, the two things when they marry together, that's when what we like to say, you, you create managers and leaders that people tell stories about. In a good way. In a good way. Yes. Because <laughs> there are probably some you tell stories about the other way. Yeah, exactly. 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 Sorry. I'm just marinating on that a little bit. That was such a, that was such a great moment. And I'm still, I'm still marinating on <laughs> the worst behaviors tolerated. Is that something you thought about, you know, since being a, a manager yourself now, John? Just if you don't mind me asking you on the spot. Yes, definitely. Like how how does one set 
culture for a team as a manager, it is difficult because the team is always made up of the individuals and those individuals you know, change very slowly over time, right? Um, so changing a manager, you know, because that's the situation that I walked in, n- newly managing a team, you know, can you set a tone, right? And that's all that you can really do is make small changes over time. And it it is difficult to confront conflict or toxic behavior in the moment without feeling like one is exercising too much role power, you know, coming down too harshly. And, and similarly, I think that it's those incremental changes, like how, how does one implement them to kind of make sure that one is coming across as trying to improve things without changing things just for the sake of change. It's also very difficult to come to be asked to do something for the team and and come without without saying I don't necessarily believe in this or you know the I think Leanne that what you said the um I, can you believe what they're asking us to do these days you know like that that's a very difficult thing to resist because you know there's an an urge to be seen as obviously I'm not an idiot and this doesn't necessarily make sense. <laughs> but I'm asking you to do it anyway. It's a it's a difficult position for a frontline manager to be in. So, you know, it's a struggle. I'm still struggling with it. <laughs> Fortunately, I haven't I haven't been asked to do anything, you know, like that where it's just like, well, this is idiotic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we've all, yeah, I've I've definitely been there when yeah, I've been asked to do things that just make no sense. And I think yeah, my my first thing was, and it always depends on the organisation, the relationship you have with your manager, as to how much you can question that and how much you can push back or or try and try and influence how that is that decision is executed. I think two things that worked really well for me in, in what you said there is that one in terms of that you know if you're asked to do something and you're like this sounds pretty stupid is actually taking him out and going, is it stu- Is it me that thinks it's stupid or is it the team that thinks it's stupid? And actually taking your team and going, okay, we've been asked to do this. Thoughts. What do we think? And you might get people that go, oh, that's a stupid idea. <laughs> and you might get other people that go, oh, okay, I can see where they're going with that. They probably want to, you know, hit this metric or do that. And if you can, and again, it depends on the organization, how much autonomy and control you have, where there's a way to, to implement that idea, but slightly tilted so it works better in operations, better in your team. Ultimately, you know, a good senior leader is going to want to know that because it's going to be more, that change is likely to be more effective and more sustainable. And I think when it comes to the behaviours as well, it's one thing that, that we did early on in, in Pinnacle was kind of talking about what what did the organisation value, organisational values mean to us as a, as a team, as a satellite team on, on a specific contract? How do we think these values translate into what we do? What are the behaviours that we'd want to see from each other? What are the behaviours that we think are unacceptable? aren't condoned, aren't allowed, are the worst behaviours we won't be, we won't tolerate. And creating a team charter, which can sound overly formal, but particularly with new teams or a team that is is going through that reforming stage with new members of staff or a new manager, having that kind of that that pause moment, that reset moment helps 
one, make sure everybody understands what is acceptable and what isn't. And it's coming from everybody. It's not coming from me as a as a hierarchy manager. It's coming from everybody. And two, when people buy into that, and you particularly if you celebrate the people who demonstrate the positive behaviours, positive reinforcement is infinitely more effective than negative reinforcement. So we want to celebrate those positive behaviours and give specific examples of, of why what you did in that moment was so good, how you dealt with that customer, how you dealt with that challenge whatever it is, and tie it to the behaviours and the impact it had and making that recognition to the individual and then to the team as a whole. Like, how cool is this? Kudos to you. And then what you'll find over time is that those behaviours get embedded within the team and within the psychology team, the norms of the team. So if somebody does engage in a behaviour that isn't tolerated, you won't need to tell them. The, the team will tell them. That makes absolute sense. That's why we do this podcast to get free consulting. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's part of our mission. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think it's a very powerful um, model to go through, right? I think it probably the the devils are as always in the details. You know how how do you how do you do that for this specific team? You know, with this specific uh, group of personalities, trying to accomplish this specific thing for the organization. Right, right. It also something you said triggered a realization in my mind, which is, you know, I think specifically what you said was, oh, I see, you know, if, if the team says, I think they're trying to affect this metric, it's always important to know what the motivation behind something is. And, and when something's being handed down, there should be kind of a, you know, like a, a motivation saying, this is what we're trying to do. This is like kind of, you know, from our values where this is coming from and, you know, our philosophical basis is this. And and as a result, you know, we'd like you to take this action. And without that, there's all this ambiguity of like, wait, why do you want us to do this? Is this is this a mistake that we've made? Is this a mistake that's been made throughout the organization and that we just happen to not trip over? Um, is there a landmine here, you know, procedurally that we just happen to not have hit that you know, this is helping to save us from that without the context, uh, things can be really confusing. Yeah. Again, it's, it's connecting the what and the why, isn't it? And I think as a manager, you're well within your rights to question senior leaders and say, I need to understand the why. If right. I'm going to implement this in, in my team, I need to understand the purpose of this. And it's so common in small organizations and large organizations. You know, there are things taken from our contract at Pinnacle People and applied to to other areas without my intervention they were just picked up and, and put down and of course there was a backlash because exactly what you said there it's about the context there was one example that I can think of where we were at a point where our contract grew so quickly that our, our customer numbers like quadrupled within probably a month and we lost track of so many people we just didn't know where they were so I sat down with every single coach and was like, right, who have you who have you got on your caseload? Who are we talking to? Let's go through one by one. Where are they up to? Where's the last time you spoke to them? What course are they doing? What support have they been? What jobs they applied for? Micromanagement at its worst. But it was necessary because we'd lost control over the, over this situation and making that clear to, you know, to people. It's not your fault. It's just a, a symptom of the rapid growth we've had, but we need to gain control. Over time, we actually kept in that process for the entirety of the contract because over time, it morphed more into a, a coaching session with my monthly one-to-ones where people were going like, okay, so such and such is here. So that's where my performance for this metric is going to come from. That's how many people I'm getting to work. This is how many people on courses. That's where that's going to come from. They could predict their own performance on the first day of the month. And then they come to a problem customer and go, I don't know what to do about such and such because they're not engaging. They're not answering the phone to me. Last I heard was this. 
we talk through different solutions, different options, what do we do with them? Um, and come to a conclusion that at the end of the, the meeting, that person then knew what they had to do with this customer that, that was causing an issue. So when the company picked up that process and rolled it out to every other contract on the business, understandably, you know, the job coach was saying, well, why am I being micromanaged? Why is my manager want to go through a fine tooth comb every single one of my customers? You've, you've lost the intent. You've lost the why. It's not what we do. It's why we do it. That's why it's important. It, yeah, it comes back to connecting those those two things. We're micromanaging and we got a ping pong table <laughs> at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> for, from now on, a uh, ping pong table is going to be shorthand for me for uh, the what with disconnected from the why. Then maybe that could be your your kind of your, I don't want to say safe word, that's the wrong word, but with your senior manager, you just, you know, your trigger is like ping pong table. Like I need, I need a why ping pong table. So, so we've gotten this ping pong table. <laughs> Leanne, I feel like like you've given us so much gold here. Uh, just really want to thank you for your time. And, and maybe one more time, if you could kind of tell us where we can find your podcast. Yeah, so the podcast is Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture. We are available wherever you find your podcasts. Wherever fine podcasts are sold. exactly and if people want to follow up on this episode leanne where can they reach out to you you can find me on linkedin leanne elliott um again if you put in truth lies and workplace culture into linkedin you'll find our page and i'm frequently posting on that um or email me directly leanne at oblonghq.com awesome we'll make sure that gets in the show notes thanks again so much for your time it's just been a a really terrific conversation i I hope uh, our listeners are getting as much value out of it as we are I hope, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was okay. I know we talked about a lot there and uncovered a lot. And what I usually say at the end of interviews like this, if, if, if you are a business leader, it's okay. Breathe. Drop me an email. We'll have a, we'll set up like a 30 minute chat or something. It's, we kind of say on the podcast, we're not just going to drop you in it and walk away. You know, we, we share these things to then hopefully help you, help you with it even more if we can. But thank you so much. It's been so much fun. I can't believe how quickly this is, this is gone. It's been brilliant. Yeah, it's been great. Oh, yeah. We'll keep an eye on the podcast and look forward to great things from you and Al. Really appreciate it, Leanne. Thank you. talked to Al Elliott in episodes 235 and 236, we wondered if Leanne would disagree with anything he said. I think she actually agreed with most of what he said. She even points out that entrepreneurs may not be the best people leaders. If they really enjoy disruption, have a high risk tolerance, that may not match what you as a person working under them are comfortable with. After all, Al did say that Entrepreneurs like to go and start new fires so they can put them out. But there may be entrepreneurs out there who have the qualities of the entrepreneurial aspect, but they may have a little more empathy toward people who don't have the risk tolerance and want the disruption that they do. What have you observed in your career? Did you know that there were 50 different definitions of culture out there? I sure didn't. And I really liked Leanne's favorite definition of culture, 
the worst behaviors that are tolerated at a company, on a team, all those things. And really, the manager has to help set that tone with the team and help them as a whole determine what's going to be tolerated and what's not tolerated. I like the exercise Leanne talked about where she put her team together. They decided they decided what the values of the company meant to them and how that translated into behaviors. This crowdsourcing of values and behaviors creates a lot of ownership on a team. It makes you feel like you had a say because you did have a say. Everybody had a say in putting that together and it gives you more buy-in because you had more ownership in that process of developing the set of behaviors that are okay and not okay on this team at this company. And I think that spurs you into action or you're more likely to be spurred into action when something you see or hear is not in line with that set of behaviors, whether you're the manager or a person working on the team. If you're a manager out there today or even an individual contributor, are you hiding the wires? Are you keeping your frustrations from being blasted out at everyone around you? I know sometimes we all struggle with that. It's a challenge. No matter who you are, what you do, everybody has a lot of pressure on them to deliver certain things at certain times. We have different things that affect us outside the office. It's not just work stresses that come our way. But I do think that this falls in line heavily with what Brendan Burchard speaks about when he says one of the differentiating factors for leaders is emotional control, trying not to let the emotions dictate the actions that we make and that we aren't our emotions. Learning to have empathy for other people, as Leanne said, the skill of emotional intelligence is something that you can learn. It's not something that you're just born with or aren't born with. You can actually learn that if you want to be a manager. And honestly, it's going to be good for everyone to have more of that empathy because we could certainly use it, especially when the stakes and pressures are high, to work with people who are different than us and, and have different goals and, and different values, different things that are important to them, which may not be important to us, but it's important to them. And we need to be conscious of that to build better relationships and collaborate. Have you ever had something come down as a change from your employer and you just really didn't understand why it was happening? In fact, maybe it even scared you. It created some anxiety. I love the idea of managers communicating why something is happening because it brings clarity and really eases your mind, especially the story that Leanne told about going through the caseload with her coaches. People might wonder, why am I being micromanaged like this? Well, it wasn't what they did. It was that they needed to gain control over a situation that had become out of control. And the only way to do that was by having the manager dig deeper into what people were doing and how they were executing. And it actually became a good thing to where people knew how they were measured. They knew what they needed to do to do a good job and be seen as doing a good job not only to their manager, but layers above. And then, of course, that process got rolled out to the rest of the organization, and and the intent may or may not have been communicated well when that happened to other teams. 
I think connecting the the what and the why is a huge theme in this episode, and really that's what the Truth, Lies, and Workplace podcast is about. I hope you'll consider listening and subscribing because they really are doing it to help people because they care. They want to help leaders. They want to help individual contributors. They want to create better places to work. And as Leanne said, some of these things like employee engagement can actually be measured with data that you can go and look at and say, well, people really aren't satisfied. They're really not engaged. But if you don't measure, you don't know. I hope you enjoyed these conversations with Al and Leanne and the different perspectives that they bring. Could it be that you need someone to coach you through a difficult time or to develop you as a person? Al and Leanne definitely have a free coaching call that they'll set up with anyone. If you need some type of advice in that way, I know John and I would be happy to at least lend an ear. We're not career coaches, but we've had other people on the show who definitely are. Just a reminder, we'd like people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm John White at B Journeyman for Nick Cordy at Network Nerd underscore. Signing off. Adios.